0: Welcome to Digital Health Unfiltered. I'm Sudebto Srivastava. And I am Nick Jeans. In this podcast, we share our insights from the cutting edge of health IT. Hello,
1: all. As Nick and I were looking at the unprecedented amount of money pouring into digital health, our jaws pretty much dropped. Now, we weren't sure if this was a blip or the new norm, But it took me just about two microseconds for one name to pop up in my head as someone we had to have and speak with to try to make sense of it all. So Jessica, welcome to Digital Health Unfiltered. Jessica, ever since our common friend Brent Stackhouse introduced us, I have leaned on you for so many insights. And as we parse into the topic at hand, I feel like you are one person that is sitting smack in the middle of all this flow of innovation, funding, aspirations and the way healthcare is moving. For many of our uh, listeners who may not know who you who, who you are, uh, so let's just start with providing an introduction. Jessica?
2: Hi, thank you so much, Nick and Sidipto, for having me on. I'm Jessica DeMassa. Um I do three things. The thing I'm most famous for is I am the executive producer and host of a health tech CEO talk show called What's the Future Health, better known as WTF Health. Um, So I talk to literally the who's who of health tech and in-depth interviews, we go through their business model, the funding they've raised, what their plans are for acquisitions or growth. um, And all that can be found on my YouTube channel. You just go to youtube.com slash WTF Health and you can check out that list of health tech celebrities there. Um, The other thing that I do is I co-host a health tech funding news show with Matthew Holt. So Matthew Holt, for those who may not know him, is OG Health Tech, he was the founder of Health 2.0, that conference series, ran yep. that for over a decade. So he knows everybody and everything um, to do with digital health, health tech. Um, and the like and so he and I cover in these 10-minute shows like the big funding deals as they're happening so we usually produce those two times a week and that show is called Health in 2.00 you can find that on YouTube as well and then the last thing is that Matthew and I because of all of this and the dirt that we have on all of the people that we know <laughs> CEOs and otherwise have decided to uh, make them be part of a conference with us and so this is brand new this year it's a virtual event um, that will be airing September 9th through the, oh, excuse me, 7th through the 10th. And it's um, called What's Next Healthcare uh, Policies, Techies, and VCs. What's Next for Healthcare? And so you can check that out at whatsnexthealthcare.com. And our lineup, you guys, is killer. Like everybody that I've talked to, I mean, to name drop a few, it's like Jonathan Bush, Glenn Tolman, Sean Lane from Olive, Jeff Arnold from Sharecare, Mario Schlosser from Oscar, Robin Berzen. I mean, like you name it, Julie Yu from Andreessen. Like, I mean, we've got, like, it is, Yeah, almost 100 speakers, and all of them are just big names in health tech. So check that out too. So that's who I am.
0: (laughs) Thank you. No, we we are we are so fortunate to have you. And yeah, that does look like an impressive lineup. Thank you. Yes, super. So let's get started with uh, this one,
1: and let's let's start with some facts. You know, um, Rock Health reported that the first half of 2021 closed with 14.7 billion dollars invested across 372 U.S. digital health deals with a 39.6 million average deal size. So they kind of really encapsulated the focus of our conversation today in a very succinct note. They said the digital health investment climate in one word is up, funding up, deals up, deal sizes up, acquisitions up, public exits up. So that's quote unquote. So Jessica, you, Nick and I have seen times when raising funds for startup companies and then finding fertile ground, to try out their products and services was such an uphill battle. You know, terms like debt by pilot were invented for it. So sitting here in mid-2021 and looking at the bullishness just makes us wonder, is this irrational exuberance or is it different this time?
2: Well, what I'm hearing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from my, the fortunate position that I have where I get to talk to all of these like leading CEOs and investors in this space. And I'm going to pull from one of the big names. So I just talked to Glenn Tolman, uh, famous for Lavongo, famous for transcarent famous for Seven Wire Ventures. And Glenn was saying, I was like, Glenn, do you think we're in a bubble? And he's like, this is not a bubble. Adamant, not a bubble. It's not a bubble because to say it's a bubble is to say this is imaginary. And it's not imaginary. Glenn Tallman, people, says this is it. We're rebuilding healthcare, And I think that we've seen that um, over the last two years in particular with what's happened and what's changed as a result of the pandemic and with this funding. And it, Sidipto, you know, you ran through uh, the Rock Health numbers there. And I think, you know, to put that into some context, I mean, I don't think this is a rational exuberance because I don't think that this much money would be flowing to this space if investors and incumbents um, didn't think that there was something really there. To put all this money behind, and that fourteen point one, excuse me, fourteen point seven billion number for the first half of this year. To put that into some perspective, all of twenty twenty was fourteen point one billion. So if we keep on pace, we're looking to double the funding amount that went into digital health, health technology from last year to this year. And you know, this is this is pretty remarkable. And I don't think that that is overblown. Um, I think too, that the other thing that needs to be said is that, you know, while this seems like it's a lot of money relative to other spending in healthcare, it's not. So, I mean, like what my favorite is to pull out the, like the average deal size. So like the average deal size right now they're saying is about 39.6 million, right? So like 39 and some Mm -hmm. change to put that into perspective. A startup raises thirty nine million dollars, and they've got that runway now, and they're expected to like run and scale up their business for like a period of years, right? The mm-hmm. CEO of Centene, Mike Mirdav, he makes twenty five million dollars a year. So like in two years over there, he's made more than these startups have to run their business over three years. So I mean, like, if you think about it that way, I think like, wow, 40 million, that's huge. But it's really not that huge when the CEO of one health plan, one C-suite level executive in one health plan is making like kind of close to that every single year. So I mean, I don't think that you could I mean, maybe that's irrational exuberance to pay him. I don't know. I'm sure he does a great job. But I mean, I think that if we put this into context, the exuberance while it's there might be more than ever before. But I think We've got a lot of headroom to grow into before we can call it irrational.
0: Okay, well, it, no, it, it's a good point. But uh, to to put it into some context that, that really opened my eyes, I you know I follow Christina Farr on Twitter, She's a big fan, her Love newsletter her. and stuff. Yeah, and she she put out a survey, just like you know, what do health IT entrepreneurs value most about their VC relationships? Is it like things like the the mentorship, or is it the networking and so on? And I was looking at this little quiz and nowhere on the list was money. And I was like, how could that must be an oversight? And I I sent her a a message or something. She's like, actually, you know, times have changed. And most everyone has the funding that they need. And that really blew me away. But, uh, you know, can that be true? And and is it is it uh, is that? Is it more than just the VC funding or have things really Well, I think
2: that's really interesting. So Matthew and I actually were just talking about this and he brought up a really great point. And it's that, you know, the the amount of funding that's coming in, it's not just venture funding anymore. You've got to keep in mind that private equity is throwing money into our space for like the first time for real in a big way. And so it's like when that happens, it's like. I don't know, they just drop off $100 million on your doorstep and are like, here, we expect a return, best of luck to you. <laughs> and it's like, the thing too is that they're dropping that money off at a startup that's been around. So a later stage startup as opposed to earlier stage startup. And so, you know, that's a different ballgame when you're a B or a C and you've already got, you know, money coming in, you've got operations and you're just trying to scale up. And so they're getting that kind of money. For the earlier stage startups, like a seed or a series A, even some of those venture funds, it's like, you know, some of them, especially the ones that are like, you know the the big names in health tech you know like oak or venrock or um general catalyst it's like they've got you know so many companies in their portfolio now i mean i wouldn't be surprised if if you know the 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 old way of a venture capitalist, and this is what Matthew said earlier beautifully, is like of coddling along the startup and helping them with introductions and making sure everything was just so and just right. Those days might be over because they've just got themselves, they've got bigger, they've got more companies with that they've got to manage and, and provide those things too. And, and they might not have the bandwidth to do that. So I do think there is a lot of value on that relationship. And if you can get a good Match with a with a venture fund. I'm sure as a startup, as an entrepreneur and a CEO, there you want all the help you can get, all the connections, all of the you know yeah. the politics that you can have some help with. But it's like I, I mean, I, I I can see where that relationship may be changing as a result of the funding and also where the funding is coming from.
0: Yeah, no, interesting, good point. And. I I wonder also, you know, like if if the the ground is shifting under my feet or something. I, I I've been spending a lot of time the last couple of years just making the existing stuff try to make it work better, uh, and and maybe not enough time bringing in fresh catches to to <laughs> appreciate like how how uh, the industry's changed. But um, I, I do remember like. Mentoring a lot of companies five ten years ago, I served on some uh, advisory boards and did some consulting. And so many of these startups, they the founders had like a really acute need. They they had some runway, but not much, and they really were desperate to sign with a big name health institution to to get in and and launch a pilot, and uh, and that would. That would be their, their lifeline to kind of bring in the next round of funding. And I sympathize with them because they had so, so much limited time. And I didn't want to waste that time or lead them on or something like that. But uh, do they have less of a pressure now to to rush into pilots? And that's probably a good thing, right?
2: I don't know if it's less pressure. I feel like the pilot itself might not be the the way that that incumbents are looking to bring these companies into their organizations anymore. Like I almost feel I want I want to say pilots are dead. God, I want to say that so bad, but I don't think I don't I can't I just can't because I know they're there. I know they're there to the to the bane of everybody's existence. I mean, you guys were telling me when we were we were in a pre chat. You know, you don't even like doing pilots, and you're from the incumbent side, and it's like. It's like You described it as PTSD, and I'm like, yeah, how do you think the founders feel? (laughs) (laughs) But I think that what I am seeing happen, and I hope that this catches on, is that some of these incumbent organizations are trying to figure out different ways to work that are mutually beneficial and not quite so one-sided. To, to the incumbent side um, to help these startups, because I mean, that was the problem always with the pilot was that you'd have a startup come in and it's like, they've got X amount of dollars to get them through. And they're waiting through your 10 month contracting period to even start to do this work, to try to get more funding and they're not getting paid. And so it's like, how is this sustainable? It's not, it's setting everybody up for failure. So I, I think, you know, one of the best examples I, I I've seen, you know, of this right now, in terms of just describing like how incumbents are maybe changing the way they're looking as Bayer. So they, full disclosure, sponsor my show, and this is why I'm so familiar, but it's like, they've got a a bunch of different ways to work with different health tech startups, depending on what size they're at, at what stage they're at in their growth. So they've got their Bayer Leaps Fund, which is just invested in a company like Transparent, that's already raised a couple hundred million dollars and is scaling quick. They've got their G4A program, which in and of itself changed the way that it was designed a couple years ago because they realized too, that even with like seed and series A startups, they're at different places and they were having trouble integrating into, you know, the, the mothership because, you know, the mothership is big. And so it's like, in some of those cases, you know, they were looking at different types of deals that were more like not just we take equity, good luck to you, but it's like, no, you've already got some revenue. Let's sign a partnership deal. We'll put you in touch with procurement instead of having you come in this way, you sign a contract and we'll just go from there, which I thought was really revolutionary. And then they've got their other, you know, ways of doing things that are more traditional, like, you know, the money they've put into a company like OneDrop. And trying to then integrate that business into their core business. So I mean, one drop, if you're not familiar, they're a chronic condition management platform that started out in diabetes, but they're taking that infrastructure they've built on the tech side and applying it to all of Bayer's lines of business. And the way they're doing that is by being integrated in with Bayer. So it's like, it's cool to me to see an incumbent have like, a multi-tier strategy for working with different startups and kind of like the respect to look at the startup and say, you know, you're not all the same. I'm not just gonna put you into our accelerator and hope for the best. I'm gonna treat you like a unique business because I think a lot of them, depending on what services or or type of care they're providing, they do need to be treated differently.
1: You know, this is fascinating and so much to unpack there, uh, Jessica, you know, your thoughts about the pilot you know, because, of course, in the past, innovative startups only had a few routes that took them through the incumbents, the hospitals, the large pairs, and pharma. And then there were the long, drawn-out pilots, as you sort of talked about, you know, which ended up sort of squeezing out these sort of startups. And then, um, you know, we're starting to see more of what you sort of meant called the innovation partnerships that are coming up, you know, and, and people are trying to create sort of new models, the bare one that you mentioned. Are you seeing anything in terms of, of the power structure itself shifting in any way that it's moving away from the incumbents to a different sort of landscape altogether?
2: Oh God, yeah. I think that that's like right now in in this moment, I feel like that's what I keep hearing from the CEOs that I've been talking to. And now granted, my last like two weeks was like Glenn Tolman, Jonathan Bush, Jeff Arnold, like I had Roy Schoenberg, like, I mean, it was like a big two weeks for me. So, I mean, some of the more disruptive people with some of, with, with, with scaled up companies and some like legitimate long-term experience shaking the system up. But, I definitely think that there is pressure on payers. I think there's pressure on PBMs. And I think that there's pressures on like the hospital system. And I think a lot of the hospital stuff has been um, as a result of COVID. And I think the pressure that's coming in is coming in from different places. So I feel like right now it's like, at least from our side, we're seeing health tech companies that are consumer business model designed. So like Hims or Row or 30 Madison, or like Let's Get Checked or Everly Well, or even some of those primary care practices that are standalone, like Village MD or like, you know, uh, Oak Street. I mean, you're seeing some of these companies where people can go direct buy their own care, bypass the health system completely, pay for it out of their own pocket, but it's in their own mm-hmm. convenience and in their own home. And that's gaining traction with a certain type of consumer. And so I think there's pressure there. I think there's pressure coming in from those non-traditional healthcare companies. I mean, like, when was the last time you were in a healthcare tech conversation and didn't hear somebody talk about Amazon cares? I mean, it's like, I feel like that's what everybody's been talking about for the last two weeks. And it's not just them, it's Walmart too. Walmart bought a telehealth company. Walmarts yeah. are, you know, all across this country or CVS. They're they've rolled out digital mental health with, within their minute clinic. I mean, that's crazy to me. I mean, like, (laughs) so there's pressure coming in on the incumbents from there as well, where it's like every corner drugstore. And then I think the last group that's putting a lot of pressure on those incumbents in particular, the health plans and PBMs are those employers who I think are just like, I mean, I don't even know, like if I'm in HR at any big company and it's like the last two years of life have had to have been just unbelievable. Like, I don't know how you do pop health anymore, post COVID, when people are coming back and everybody is, you know, admittedly has anxiety, depression. I mean, there are mental health problems all over. Some people have substance abuse problems. There's like an increase in obesity, increase in chronic conditions. Like, I don't even know what benefit design is going to, I shudder to think what benefit Mm -hmm. design is going to look like in 2022 and 23, because I think it's like and employers, I think have just had enough. Like they, I feel like it, it's just like they have taken matters into their own hands. The, that tide was turning a couple of years ago. I started to hear it from some of the CEOs I've interviewed. Scott Shreve from Crossover Health, in particular, was like they've become activist, activist employers, wow. and it's like they're taking matters into their own hands. And I think now, especially in this post-COVID world, where a lot of them did have to make healthcare decisions around COVID about the about. Taking care of their people, I feel like they're even more empowered than ever before. And now there are more options out there, thanks to all the funding that is poured into our space. So I mean, yeah, it's just you know incumbents are big, and I know all the numbers around them, and it's it's going to be hard to you know take down the battleship from the rowboat that we're in. But I definitely think they're starting to feel the pressure a little bit, a little bit.
0: Yeah, but I I'll I'll say though uh and this this might be simplistic but with so much funding, so many new startups, so many like, you know, potential uh avenues to go, uh and and choices for consumers that is there a risk that like with so much funding that some of these companies are going to hobble along even if they're not a great fit for the market, even if they're not uh a great fit for consumers, even if the idea is not It's kind of a bad idea or something like um, it it is our patients and customers going to end up like, you know, working with a a company that might have been better off uh, facing the fate of the invisible hand and, and just getting killed off. See, I want to say to you,
2: I'm like, on what I I just finished saying, I feel like the invisible hand might be having a whack at the incumbents instead here. (laughs) I do. I think the status quo, I think everybody really got a glimpse of just how broken our healthcare system is during the pandemic. And I think, you know, if I look back at it, it's like, it's not even just, you know, I mean, there were, there were myriad challenges and everybody did their best and that's great. And it's like, you know, the hospitals did what they had to do in terms of taking care of the very sick. And that's awesome. But I think in some other ways, you know, the, the ability to pivot quickly to, to virtual care for some, some organizations was hard and they were not set up for that. And there was, there were gaps. And then I think other things like even just, you know, you were able to see, you know, the pharma companies really rise to the occasion and our government regulators rise to the occasion in terms of getting a vaccine improved but then that was it i mean it was like there was an infrastructure problem in terms of getting that vaccine out and who did we turn to we turned to those retail pharmacies we turned to uh, you know and yeah. to walgreens and walmart and so it's like i feel like that may have uh, that may have opened those eyes over there that it's like yeah. there is something to be said about the the infrastructure that lives underneath healthcare. And the invisible hand might be correcting that in those ways, in terms of making it a little bit more looking like a retail model in some ways for some kinds of care, and also the Roy Schoenberg from Anwal talks extensively about the virtual care being a, an integral piece of infrastructure, just like an EMR yep. in, in a healthcare system, and that's not really how it. It is or was, right? And so it's like, that's going to continue to evolve. So I do think that the invisible hand here might correct for that. And as far as some of the startups go, I mean, the ones that I think have gotten, and and by my count, there are more than, there are around 50 startups. And this is just my account, unofficial Jessica Damas account in my spreadsheet. More than 50 different startups that raised over $100 million this year, just this year. And it's like, I don't think that there are, I feel like it's too early to tell what's going to happen with them in terms of, you know, you know, capitalism and those services being, you know, bought and used. But I, I think that right now, I mean, they've got too, too much funding to have to, to fall apart here anytime soon. That's my opinion on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's... <laughs>
2: some of the smaller ones, maybe, but, <laughs> but yeah, those that have raised anywhere. a lot of money, I think that, I mean, I would look, if I were an incumbent, I would look at that field of some of those companies. I would look at Olive that's raised, especially Olive, like, yeah. I mean, $902 million, almost a billion dollars in venture funding, $4 billion valuation. They raised 830 million of that since March of last year. So, they're, I mean, that's staggering to me. Yeah, they're like, not I mean, going anywhere. They're the no. new incumbent. No. I mean, Rose raised $500 million. I mean, that's, that is virtual care with prescription delivery attached to it. I yeah. mean, I would look at that if I were an incumbent organization. I mean, it's just, I, that's where that invisible said it.
1: <laughs> wow, that's a nice flip of the hand uh,
2: to, <laughs> to that question. I'm going to get this, smacked upside the head by somebody over here. <laughs> I,
1: I know. You know, and, and sometimes I wonder, because last year also saw a lot of people sitting with a lot of cash as well. and uh, And, you know, a lot of it has to play out because people just didn't have, room to, to throw money at. So it'll be interesting to see how this sort of uh, lands up in the future. But that brings us to the part of our uh, podcast where we go out on a limb and make a prediction. So, uh, you know, today we'll sort of, uh, you know, Jessica, we'll, we'll, we'll let you sort of close us out. Um, but, you know, maybe sort of think in terms of bullish or bearish, you know, go for the startups or the incumbents. Who will win? Because, you know, in, in a previous podcast also, we talked about how uh, and this was around the 21st century's Cures Act, the fact that the incumbents have so much to lose that they will start putting up barriers. They will start putting up ways to um, use lobbyists and their funding power and
0: their, you know, influence. And, and, just, and, and IT to kind of like lock patients in or something. Yeah, right? and like but, you know, the data and whatnot. But, but the Cures Act will prevent that.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I am super bullish on the Cures Act. Yeah. Um,
2: Aren't we all? Yes.
1: So, I guess, you know, in thinking ahead, like, you know, what would sort of our individual sort of predictions would be? You know, um, I'll go first. Um, you know, I, I think I want to close on an optimistic note. And I think, Jessica, just hearing you speak, you know, I'm thinking even with these sort of startups, uh, go for the old adage of like, let's aim for the stars. And if not, you know, you at least end up landing on the moon. Because I, I feel like this much needed focus on healthcare is going to be good. The outcome may be a mutilated form of how we currently deliver care because a lot of the startups might disrupt and break things. Many of them are not stuck to the traditional way of delivering care, and so what? Um, That is gonna disrupt the marketplace, but I am definitely rooting for this. The timeline horizon um, are a little uncertain on because healthcare does take a lot, lot of time to change. So I'm going to give maybe at least five to ten years, you know, for uh, for us to be able to look back and say it really
0: changed. But boy, am I bullish after this conversation! Okay, so your your prediction is mutilated model of healthcare. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, like I just want to
0: want to put the stake in the ground there. But no, I, I well, I'll tell you, I am a little less confident about this prediction than I was uh, before I learned all this uh, new insights from Jessica, but. Uh, I do feel deep down, I am looking at all these VC investments. I'm looking at the Rock Health Report and I feel like it can't get much bigger, can it? Like we're going to look back at the Rock Health Report in 2022 and say 2021 was the high water mark, at least for the next three to five years or something like, and, and what's going to happen in the next few years is that, uh, you know, we're going to watch these companies exert their influence and see how things shake out in the new landscape. And And, you know, there's some, policy uncertainty, too. I think we a new presidential administration, maybe uh, new bold directions for infrastructure, maybe for healthcare too. So investors will cool off in the in the next uh, six to 12 months. That's my prediction. <gasps>
2: You think they're gonna cool off? I don't think so. And like, you're. This is gonna be. I know. Mad at me. This I, is even as upset as, mad as mad school, school, you
0: guys, Jessica's <laughs> gonna tear this apart. and she knows this stuff in and out. All no,
2: right, I don't want. Maybe I don't want the bad news. So I am obviously health tech's, like biggest cheerleader, like literally. <laughs> and but here's the thing, though. I mean, like, and I, I don't. I don't want to sound anti-incumbent because I'm not. Because And you have to remember, too, a lot of these incumbents are invested in these startups. So it's like, who's going to win? It's like, really, they're both going to win in, in a lot of ways. I mean, like you guys, I mean, your connections to to the different health systems that you belong to, I mean, you know, you guys are invested in startups. So it's like you want them to win, but you also want to keep your system status quo. I think, Sudipto, what you said is really interesting about this, like, your kind of breaking the healthcare model i feel like i just recently had a conversation with jonathan bush who's just started a new a new company called zeus and they're building this new tech infrastructure they want to create a new centralized electronic medical record fully leveraging like all of the things that get opened up with the cures act right and in that conversation, we started talking about this and I've had similar kind of talks with Roy and with um, Glenn Tolman, you know, it's like there almost seems like there's this secondary healthcare market that's starting to emerge alongside the traditional one. I I am like, I honestly feel like with the startups and and the investment that's coming in the space, I think more money is going to go to build that secondary type of healthcare delivery system. And it's going to be virtual and it's not going to be, you know, um, it's going to be virtual. It's going to be price transparent. It's going to be accessible. It's going to be around what currently exists, but have pieces of what what does currently exist. And it's going to be connected to some of the incumbent organizations, but not all of them. And I think that what's going to end up happening is that like, this is where we've always said, oh, the consumerization of healthcare, blah, blah, all of that stuff. I do think we are starting to see a lot of money go toward that and empowering a certain kind of healthcare consumer to buy their own care. And I think that that like ancillary healthcare system is going to evolve alongside what does currently exist. I'm bullish on that. I really think that there's going to be more of that um, than anything else. And I think what's going to augment that, you didn't give me this option, incumbents versus startups. What about those non-traditional healthcare companies? Like those retailers, I'm telling you. I mean, like let Amazon redo this and Somebody gave me the example about online shopping, you know, and traditional retail. And just when, you know, you thought there's all this money in real estate, there's all this money in property, malls. Think of the, you know, people aren't going to buy things online. And it's like, it, it took a long time, but it shifted. And I do think that in a lot of cases, and, and I don't just mean for virtual care, but I even mean for, you know, prescription delivery and some of the testing that can be done at home and even home health in a lot of ways, you know, caregiving mm-hmm. and, and things like that, that actually bring a real person to, to your your home so that you can age in place you know, and, and recover and actually have better health outcomes. I think that a, a new model is going to emerge alongside what currently does exist. And I do think the funding does support that. So I don't know if I'm just too hopeful and too optimistic, but hey. Wow. What do you say? Yeah. Big success, great success and great love require great risk. And I'm there. <laughs> okay. That awesome. is
1: amazing. Jessica, thank you. What a treat. Uh, thank what you, a guys. Treat. Thank so, you so uh, much. Thank you, Jessica. So that's it for this week. Bye, guys. Bye bye. That's it for this week.
0: Join us again next time on Digital Health Unfiltered. Please note that the views presented in this podcast are not to be construed as the views of Mount Sinai Health System or the Hospital for Special Surgery or any of its affiliates.